Okay, guys, welcome. Let's open our Bibles or navigate on your app to Matthew 24. We've been doing a series on Wednesday night called The Days of Noah. And uh, tonight we're finishing a section in Matthew 24. This might be our last study in the days of Noah, or we might take a look at what Peter and Jude have to say about Noah. Peter talks about Noah quite a lot as well in his book, uh, in his letter, when he talks about the end times. But tonight we're in Matthew 24. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We always want to approach it uh, reverently and carefully. We want to study it, Lord, but uh, see in it what you want us to see, what you put there for us to discover, the deep, rich veins of uh, glory that reveal your love and grace. And so we want to gain knowledge tonight, but we also want to know you and leave this place more excited than ever that we're in a personal, living, eternal relationship with God. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I haven't seen it. Maybe you have. It's an HBO series called The Leftovers. I found this commentary about it. In a global cataclysm called The Sudden Departure, 140 million people disappear without a trace. Three years later, residents of fictional Mapletown, New York, try to maintain equilibrium when the notion of normal no longer applies. Intense grief has divided families and turned faith to cynicism, paranoia, and madness leading some of the traumatized to join the guilty remnant, a cult-like group. Kevin Garvey, a beleaguered police chief, must keep peace between townspeople and the cult. The task made tougher with the concerns about his kids. His daughter alternates between apathy and rebellion, and his wayward son befriends a charismatic prophet. Now, they don't call it the rapture. It's a rapture-like event. One Christian TV critic commented, saying, this sudden departure happened swiftly and is a seemingly random, meaningless event void of the spiritual significance found in popular Christian accounts of a rapture. There's no logical or spiritual reasoning that can make sense of the disappearances. Children and parents, sinners and saints, all disappear with no discrimination based on morality or innocence. And so it's a TV rapture to nowhere. It's a rapture without Jesus. I always think that Hollywood would be better off following the Bible storyline. It would be more exciting and would make total sense. I don't know how many of you wasted your time watching Noah when it was released with Russell Crowe. It was terrible. The real story of Noah is so much more exciting. Uh, The Bible tells some fantastic tales, uh, and uh, Leftovers is not one of them. Now, being left over used to be called being left behind. It's how we describe non-believers who will be surprised at the resurrection and rapture of the church. When the Lord takes us home, they will be left behind to navigate the troublesome years of the great tribulation on the earth. There are Christians who are leaving things behind for those left behind. Are you, have you started doing that? You don't have to admit it if you have, but it's, it's kind of a famous thing. The brother that prayed the sinner's prayer with me down in Riverside, had notes all over his house to be found by his non-believing relatives and neighbors who would come looking for him. Uh, He had testimonies and Bibles and tracts and things. I found a website, if you're wondering about it, it's called raptursurvivalkit.com. You first leave your loved ones a letter on raptureletters.com, and then you put your kit together. 
they say to use a big plastic container that has a note on it saying, open after my disappearance. Seems kind of ominous, but anyway, the contents are up to you, of course, but Bibles and Christian literature explaining the gospel are obviously high on the list. Hopefully, you've told your parents and loved ones that aren't Christians about the rapture so that they'll be able to figure out without you having a care package sent to them ominously and weirdly uh, after you're gone. I guess you could find somebody you think could never get saved and put him in charge of that, but that might not work out. Maybe if someone had done that in fictional Mapleton, New York, the leftovers wouldn't be so ignorant. So it's not such a dumb idea. Now, since the rapture is our blessed hope, and since it is always imminent, we tend to read the events of Matthew 24 through rapture-colored glasses, especially verses 40 through 42, where we are tonight. There we read, then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. It's not the rapture. Jesus has not been talking about events that precede the Great Tribulation. He's been talking about the events that occur during the Great Tribulation. And he's speaking in the context of his second coming, ending the Great Tribulation. In verse 29, for example, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days. He's not bouncing back and forth uh, on a timeline. Jesus said things would be as the days of Noah, and verse 39 continues the theme of Noah's days and establishes the timing of what we just read in verses 40 through 42. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 39, they did not know until the flood came and took them away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So in the days of Noah, which is our context, the flood came and took them away. Who did the flood take away? What took away the wicked to death and eventually eternal judgment? Who was left behind, or we might say left over? Noah and his family were left behind to repopulate the earth. The people in verses 40 and 41 who are taken are those non-believers who have survived the tribulation only to be taken away in judgment at the second coming. They are the goats when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. The people in verses 40 and 41 who are left are those believers who have survived the tribulation who are left to repopulate the earth. They are the sheep when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. If you're a Christian now, you won't be on the earth for any portion of the Great Tribulation. You're going to be resurrected or raptured prior. Should you die, you'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. When the Lord comes back to rapture the church, the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning you'll get your resurrection body, and uh, the rest of us will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, caught up together, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Once the church is removed, the earth will be populated entirely by non-believers who are left behind. So at the rapture, you don't want to be left behind. Those who become believers during the seven-year Great Tribulation will want to be left behind at the second coming. It means they will enter into the kingdom on earth ruled by Jesus for a thousand years. So you understand? We don't want to be left behind now at the rapture. We want to be taken up with the Lord. But in the tribulation, those people who get saved Though they are the ones left behind to remain on the earth to populate the earth after Jesus returns. 
Now, why are we so adamantly pre-trib in our understanding of the last days? Well, first of all, it is an important question. A lot of Christians today aren't interested in prophecy. I don't think, I, I think we're probably a little bit more interested in prophecy than the average church, but the Bible is 25% prophecy, and so you should at least hit these topics uh, a quarter of the time. And so if a church isn't talking about prophecy at least 25% of the time, then they're skipping it. Uh, we, we probably go a little bit overboard, but I think that is um, justified by the times in which we live. It's, you know, when I first got saved and I tried to talk to people about the end times because I was excited about it, people thought you were crazy. Now, non-believers are talking about the end times. They're, they're making shows like The Leftovers. They're t- coming up with their version of the rapture. Everything is post-apocalyptic. The most uh, popular shows on television are about dystopian futures, The Walking Dead, all those kinds of things. And so people are really interested in it, and so I don't think we can overdo it. Plus, it's an important question because to some extent it should determine how you live. If you believed in a pre-wrath or mid-trib or post-trib rapture, do you think you should be doing a little prepping for survival? I mean, the people that I know who say they believe that they're going to go through the tribulation, they sure don't act like it. They, they act like they're going to get raptured before the tribulation because they're not really making any preparations for those terrible times. Mark Hitchcock is a pastor we trust for end times information. He has a list of six biblical arguments for a pre-trib rapture. I'm going to present them without going into a lot of detail. Just read through them. He says, the place of the church in Revelation is a reason, namely in the key section on the tribulation in the Bible... Revelation chapters 4 through 18, absolutely no mention of the church at all. Uh, Secondly, the rapture is not the same as the return of Jesus Christ. New Testament teaches that Jesus will come for his church to escort us to his Father's house, and it also teaches that he will come with his saints when he descends from heaven to judge his enemies and establish his thousand-year kingdom on the earth. The distinct differences between these two phases of his coming are harmonized successfully by our pre-trib view of the rapture. In fact, a post-trib rapture is impossible because if all believers... Think it through. End of the tribulation, Jesus returns, rapture of the believers, and then they come back with Jesus to the earth. That's how the post-trib rapture works. Jesus now is on the earth with translated believers, there are no believers left on the earth, only non-believers who are taken away to judgment. There's no one left on planet earth to repopulate the human race. So you you absolutely can't have a post-trib rapture. It just doesn't work. A third reason, the church is exempted from God's wrath. The Bible promises in several places that we are exempt from the coming wrath of God of the tribulation period. Revelation 3, 10 and 11, for example, the Lord's promise is very specific. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Uh, Fourth, there's a time gap between the rapture and the second coming. You need to have some kind of a gap because there's a lot of end times events predicted in the Bible. Fifth is, we've talked about this a lot, imminence. Multiple passages teach that the rapture could happen at any moment. It is a signless event that needs no precursors. It could happen right now. And then finally, it is a blessed hope. If God's people have to endure three and a half years, five and a half years, or even seven years of the tribulation before he comes, 
I don't think that you could call that the blessed hope. Uh, it would be uh, something not blessed. Now, the rapture is not what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. The church is not in view. It will already be safe in heaven by the time one is taken and the other is left. So then he ends this little section by saying, Watch, therefore, verse 42, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And this brings us full circle to where we started our series on the days of Noah. In verse 36, Jesus said, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If the great tribulation lasts exactly seven years, how can a person in the tribulation not know what hour the Lord is coming? Won't it be seven years after the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel? Won't it be three and a half years or 1,260 days after the temple is desecrated? There's a lot of really key uh, times given in uh, the book of the Revelation to the exact day. I've told you before, and I think this is part of it, on a practical level, if you read the Revelation, the earth will be so devastated that it may not be possible to tell time or to know where you are on the calendar. Believers who survive the tribulation judgments must persevere knowing that the Lord will return to set things right. And so um, the very stars and, and the moon and the sun, everything is going to be dramatically affected during the great tribulation such that it, it may become impossible to tell time or to know exactly where you are. And so this is a promise to believers that just persevere because I will come. Jesus, won, another place it says, if those days had not been shortened, all flesh would have been destroyed. doesn't mean they will be shortened. It means shortened means if they didn't have a prescribed period of time, the, then you can only go on so long. But there is a prescribed period of time. It's seven years. And so how is it that Jesus doesn't know? Well, we also pointed out that this phrase, no one knows the day or the hour, is said by some to be a Jewish idiom that announces the Feast of Trumpets. I want to go into that briefly again. One Jewish source I said, or I found rather, said this, understanding the expression, no man knows the day or the hour, is not possible by simply taking the English translation literally because in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, we are given exact descriptions of timing relative to key events such as the shutting down of the altar sacrifices in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the 70th week. On top of that, Jesus did claim to know the future in pretty precise detail. This entire discourse is him giving us the future. And so when he says no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun, and we normally argue that, well, he is speaking in his humanity and as a human being he doesn't know, but as God, of course, he knows. That's, of course, possible, and I don't want to belittle that. But it could be he's talking about something else entirely that we don't recognize because we're not Jewish and we're not in the first century. From his book, Signs in the Heavens, Avi Ben Mordecai devotes a chapter to explaining what no man knows the day or the hour truly means from a rabbinical Hebraic perspective. Let me read from him uh, from his book. He says, That day and hour no man knows refers to the sanctification or the setting apart of the new moon. Without this setting apart, the Jews had no way of determining God's appointed times. Twelve times a year, a new Jewish month was announced to the people. We have no system like that today. 
We look at a calendar to determine the first of the month. The Jews, however, looked at the moon. This system of chronology was given to the Jews to know precisely when the holy festivals would fall. The moon was the faithful Jewish calendar or witness in the sky and 12 times a year was sanctified as the basis of the Jewish stellar calendar. To correctly announce the first day of the month established by the new moon was one of the Sanhedrin's great responsibilities. They had to ensure the people knew when the first of the month began 12 times a year. As soon as the new moon was announced, the first day of the month began. Once the beginning of the month was established, the festivals and the weekly Sabbaths for the upcoming month were sanctified for observance. So basically what they're saying is the uh, Sanhedrin would appoint witnesses, two witnesses as a matter of fact, and they would give independent corroboration that the new moon had happened, and that would be the first day of the month, and then they would start counting and say, so the tenth day of the month we will have this festival. And so you would start counting from that point forward. However, the seventh month on the Jewish calendar, Tishri, particularly important because it was the only month that had a holy convocation, a festival on the first day of the month. If you go back into Exodus and you read about all the different festivals and uh, feasts, they all start later in the month except for one. The first day of Tishri was the time called Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets. Yet no one could begin observing it until they heard the, from the president of the Sanhedrin that the new moon had come. No one in Israel could plan for the first day of the seventh month. When they knew how many days to count to a festival, that would be easy. But how could they plan for a festival they did not know at what day or hour it would begin publicly until it was announced. This was unique to the Feast of Trumpets. And so what the author here is saying, this Jewish Hebraic author is saying, is that when a Jew hears the phrase, no one knows the day or the hour, it's a reference to the month of Tishri and the fact that they didn't know the first of the month until it was announced and then the festival would begin immediately. And so it could be, by using this idiom twice, Jesus was letting us know that his second coming would coincide with the Feast of Trumpets. Just as Jesus fulfilled the spring feast at his first coming to the very day over subsequent days, so we can expect that he will fulfill the fall ones, the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of Tishri, then ten days later the Day of Atonement, and then five days after that the Feast of Tabernacles at his second coming. I mean, most conservative commentators feel like that's sort of in the bag, as it were. So Jesus, when he came the first time, Passover, uh, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, all of those right in a row fulfilled in his first coming. And so Jesus might be saying, hey, nobody knows the day or the hour. That means I'm coming back on the Feast of Trumpets, and after that we'll have the Day of Atonement, and then I will tabernacle among men. And so Jesus, it seems, is setting a date for his return, his second coming, an exact date, the first of Tishri, the Feast of Trumpets, as the Great Tribulation ends. At the same time, people won't know when it is. They won't know when it is because of changes in the heavens and they they won't be able to keep time. But it also has to be announced. And Jesus is saying, God will announce it and then I will return. It's a very, very interesting way of looking at this situation. And so... 
um, if you, you can have fun with people and say, hey, we're, we're setting dates now for the return of Jesus. And, and in a way we are, it, but it's the second coming, which, of course, the Bible sets that date anyway. It says it's going to be 1,260 days after the abomination that makes desolate in the temple. But uh, as far as the rapture, imminent, any moment, could happen any time. But uh, Jesus is talking here in this section about his second coming, not the rapture. So interesting, when you stop and take a closer look at some of these things, uh, keeping it in context, uh, gets you into a kind of a deeper flow of what the Lord was all about and so that we understand a little bit better what's happening in the last days. Amen?